This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Techno podcast. I'm Sarah Conti and I'm the Senior Manager, Advice Technical and Regulatory for BT. I'm part of the BT Technical Services team, a group of qualified individuals who can help you as advisors answer any technical advice strategy related queries you may have. The new ongoing fee arrangement legislation commenced on 1 July 2021 for new arrangements, requiring advisors to seek renewal of ongoing fee arrangements annually, provide an FDS annually with forward and backward-looking data on fees and services offered and accepted, and to obtain written consent prior to fees being deducted. Where an arrangement was in place before 1 July 2021, a 12-month transitional period applied. During transition, advisors were required to issue the enhanced FDS at any stage during transition, and the day that the FDS was issued to the client set the anniversary date going forward. It's also worth considering that the requirement to obtain consent for the deduction of fees for transitional clients applied from 1 July 2022. As we exit transition and operate under the new rules, there will surely be teething issues. Joining our podcast today to help us wade through the changes and highlight some of the traps to be aware of is Brian Pollock, Director Corporate Governance for the Principles Community. The Principles Community is a privately owned business which is focused on being the community of choice for successful self-licensed businesses. They look after 125 licensees who collectively authorise around 1,200 advisors across the country and provide support to transition businesses into their own licence. They have a broad offer that focuses on bringing the self-licensed community together, governance, scaled benefits, as well as delivering significant professional development to the advisors. Brian, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's good to be with you, Sarah. Brian, can you give our listeners a recap of what the legislation requires advisors and licensees to do now that we've exited transition? Absolutely. Um, Thanks, Sarah. Well, firstly, I think that everyone will be happy that the transition period has ended. (laughs) It was much more complex than it needed to be. Now that we are in our business as usual approach, let's discuss the obligations associated with ongoing fee arrangements. And remember, an ongoing fee arrangement exists where the fee recipient, and that's such as the advisor, gives personal advice to a retail client. The advisor and client enter into an arrangement and under the terms of the arrangement, the client must pay the advisor a fee, however described or structured, during a period of more than 12 months. This is really important as other arrangements that don't meet these requirements aren't subject to the same obligations such as fixed term contracts of up to 12 months or simply receiving life insurance commission where there's no ongoing arrangement or ongoing commitment to do reviews associated with that life insurance commission. Where an ongoing fee arrangement exists, it requires the advisor, as an example, to annually provide the client a fee disclosure statement. And that fee disclosure statement must be provided no later than 60 days after the anniversary day. The FTS will seek the client's written renewal of the ongoing fee arrangement within 120 days. So that's, that's really different to the FTS giving. The renewal period includes the anniversary day. 
And then if the client fails to renew the arrangement, the fees turn off 30 days later. And that's 150 days after the anniversary day. The, the FDS has three parts. The first being the amount of each ongoing fee in dollar terms paid by the client in the previous year, along with services the client was entitled to receive and what was actually provided. The second part of the FDS being the amount of each ongoing fee in dollar terms, again, the client is expected to pay along with what services they're entitled to. And the third and final component is on how to renew the arrangement. So that's the renewal in the FDS is all one document now. So in addition to the FDS process, the advisor will also need to provide a fee consent form um, to their clients. And that's by obtaining the client's written consent before they can deduct or arrange to deduct or accept deductions of ongoing fees from the client's account. Now the fee consent form is not required where those fees are being deducted from a client's bank account or credit card. So remember the, fee, the FDS and the fee consents can be combined. Though typically we haven't been um, seeing this given the overlay put into place by most product providers. Right, thanks Brian. So obviously quite a different approach from what advisors would be used to. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to touch on that anniversary date because obviously that anniversary date is critical for timing under the ongoing fee arrangements as the FDS is required to be provided within 60 days after the anniversary date um, and the 120-day renewal period commences on the anniversary date. So for those new clients, their anniversary date is the day on which the arrangement was entered into and for transitional clients, the anniversary date is the day that the fee recipient uh, provides the client with a fee disclosure statement. Can you explain how these two are different and, you know, why does that even matter? Very good point. And so I think there's two parts to this question. So firstly, on the timing of given the FDS and the renewal period, it's really quite interesting that we have different timing requirements in place for the one process. The 60-day giving period of the FDS commences after the anniversary date. So 60 days, you know, within 60 days after the anniversary date, whereas the renewal period includes the anniversary date. So technically you've got a timeline that has an anniversary day plus 60 days to give the FDS and an anniversary day plus 119 days to do the renewal. And then further, we have an anniversary date plus 150 days to turn off the fees if the client fails to renew the arrangement. So three, Three dates, two same, the same process, one including the anniversary date being the renewal period. The second part to your question relates to the anniversary day approach. So for existing pre-1 July 21 clients, that's ongoing fee arrangement clients, the giving of the FDS established the future anniversary date during the transition, not when the FDS was actually signed and or returned to the advisor or the licensee. Whereas for new clients, the date the arrangement was entered into establishes the anniversary date. And there's certainly been plenty of discussion on the date entered into aspect as part of fulfilling these obligations. But once that anniversary date is established, it's locked into place. And it can only be amended if the arrangement is terminated, the fees are turned off, a new ongoing fee arrangement is established and new fee consents obtained. We saw several licensees and advisors during the transitional year really be practically planning ahead the timing of when they're going to give the 
FDS to their clients during the transitional year. We had a large number of discussions about when an advisor typically see their clients and how the FDS could be provided ahead of this time to allow advisors to align the giving of the FDS with the annual review on a go forward basis. Brian, that's a really interesting point. So how are the advice businesses you speak to, how are they typically approaching the time, the timing of those annual reviews? Yeah. Look, there, there's a mixture of approaches um, in place, Sarah. Though typically the two common approaches uh, we're seeing um, in the market, especially in our community, the first approach, and for me, this is the one-step process uh, that I touched on above, where the advisors are looking to set up and deliver their annual reviews during the actual renewal period, which for me makes a lot of sense. There's nothing that says we have to provide our annual review at the end of the, relevant, the, end of the relevant period. Uh, this creates a degree of risk that if the clients aren't available, we may end up needing to refund fees. Whereas doing the review uh, in the initial stages and during the renewal period, um, at the start of the relevant period means that we can manage the giving and signing off of forms and consents at the same time as doing the annual review which is simply more efficient than seeking to send these out and chase up the documents. A key point though, is that the advisors um, need to make sure their client reviews were delivered within the agreed contractual period. So this is not about not providing the service within the relevant period. This is simply using that transitional timeline to enable that anniversary date to be reestablished and that reviews continue to be provided within the relevant period. Um, the second approach, uh, we have advisors maintain their standard annual review approach, which is to undertake the annual review within the last couple months of the relevant period. And I describe this as a two-step process. The first step is to undertake the annual review. And the second step is to then produce and provide the FDS and fee consents at a later date and after the anniversary day. Remember, you can't provide the FDS early, like we may have used to done, where we reset the dates for giving the FDS early. We can no longer do that. Uh, it's also worth noting that some advisors are providing a summary of fees and services at the annual review and indicative fees for the upcoming year to socialize at the review meeting with their clients. Sort of a draft FDS, but not called an FDS. Um, ahead of the FDS being produced at a later stage and set after the anniversary date. Um, this is particularly where the fee consents are being signed or the fees are going to increase for the upcoming year. This way, the clients therefore don't get any surprises when the FDS is sent out after the anniversary day. Wow, interesting um, different perspectives on that. Um, Brian, I wanted to focus on question seven of ASIC's ongoing fee arrangement FAQs. Um, that particular question states that the anniversary day for an ongoing fee arrangement is defined in law, and it is the anniversary of the day on which the ongoing fee arrangement was entered into. Um, there certainly has been some discussion amongst some of the legal firms within the industry who have, in fact, challenged ASIC's view on this. Um, would you mind sharing some, some light on, on what's being said? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, Sarah, I think this has been quite a complex been quite complex um, as ASIC's information sheet 256 provides an example of the client signing an authority to proceed as being the date the arrangement is entered into. And then this becomes the future anniversary date. 
licensees um, have received different advice uh, and it's varied between the legal providers. Um, and I spoke to about this with Paul Durham from Holly Nevercoat. Uh, and Paul offered to speak to ASIC to see if we could arrive at an approach where advisors and licensees could operate their ongoing fee arrangement process more efficiently. Simply having 30 different dates each month isn't useful or efficient for a lot of licensees. Paul joined the principals community recently at one of our responsible member, manager webinars where he had an informal discussion with ASIC around how these um, um, arrangements could be better facilitated. Off the back of this, we believe that ASIC will be updating its information sheet to reflect these discussions about the date the arrangement was entered into, or at least make the current statement more broader to be only an example and not the only way. If we think about ongoing fee arrangements, these are arrangements that are subject to offer and acceptance. What Paul has indicated is that subject to certain limitations being met, that the ongoing fee arrangement could be signed by a client and be subject to the advisor or licensee accepting and signing the ongoing fee arrangement. What this means is that the date entered into and subsequent anniversary day will then be the date the advisor or licensee signed the ongoing fee arrangement. Paul and his team have developed an ongoing fee arrangement policy uh, and arrangements that support this approach, which, address, uh, which also addresses those limitations I mentioned before. And as an example of a limitation is not providing any services described in the arrangement before that arrangement commences. Uh, and those documents and policies are available via their Holly Nevercoat hub, HN hub. And just to note, ASIC has not as yet updated its information sheet off the back of those discussions. Okay. Brian, look, a common question we are asked is around fee consent and whether a client's fee consent can be obtained before the anniversary date. When you consider ASIC's ongoing fee arrangement FAQs, question eight states that you can only renew an ongoing arrangement in writing and during the renewal period. And item 1.47 of the EM also seems to support this view. Um, firstly, could you explain like, how is the fee consent process? How is that different to the renewal process? And I guess more broadly, how have you been guiding licensees and advisors on this? Yeah. So let's remember, firstly, the fee consent is simply the permission to deduct the fees from the relevant product provider. It does not obtain the client's written consent to renew the ongoing fee arrangement. Only the fee disclosure statement, the FDS, can achieve this purpose. So more broadly, this is an interesting area, um, Sarah. I mentioned earlier the two common approaches to the end review process um, and the variations to the second example. I mentioned that some licensees and their advisors are seeking to produce the fee consents as part of the end review and before the anniversary day. What I've been saying is that there's nothing that says we can't produce and provide the fee consents forms before the anniversary day at the annual review. The ASIC information sheet is dealing with renewing the ongoing fee arrangements. It doesn't specifically address the fee consent aspect. I think it may have been assumed, even in the EM, yeah. that it's logical to give the fee consent with the FDS, which ASIC rightly point out that these documents can be combined. This said, the timing of completing these fee consents is likely to be subject to any limitations that your relevant product providers may have in respect to their systems and processes. And further, there is a risk in this approach 
And that should you then fail to obtain the FDS renewal later on, you would need to ensure those fees are switched off manually as receiving those fees after the ongoing fee arrangement has been terminated is a reportable situation. And we've seen plenty of those examples, unfortunately. Um, Sarah, ultimately, this is a risk management call for advisors and their licensees, though I do recognise that the fee consent process is much more complex and time-consuming than it really needs to be, uh, with advisors often having to seek a large number, you know, over eight, as an example, for clients with multiple arrangements, like a husband and wife, with joint and single arrangements, and a Southbound Soup Fund. Yeah, wow. Um, look, another common question we're getting is around the contents of that enhanced FDS, and you sort of touched on this before. Um, and the questions are really coming around whether or not that consent needs to be provided in that enhanced FDS document. Um, what's your view on this? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I think that the FDS, the FDS must include the relevant renewal statements and the client must consent in writing. However, the client does not need to actually sign the FDS renewal statement. They could simply send an email or text message. Remember, this is a written statement confirming they wish to renew the ongoing fee arrangement. Uh, just take care though, to ensure all parties actually confirm. If you receive a renewal via email, as an example, from say one client, indicating that he or she wants to renew, though the email is not from all relevant parties, then you'd still need to obtain the written renewal from the unnamed parties, being like the wife or the husband. In addition to this, I've seen many fee disclosures um, templates, they include a ticket box to consent or opt out. Uh, and at times, the clients actually sign these. They don't tick the actual box. Um, yeah. Does the advisors and the support staff then need to go back to those clients, which really isn't efficient uh, and not overly client-friendly. So keep your FDS renewal as simple as possible, in my humble view. Yeah. Look, currently most advisors would have their own consent forms for clients and product providers may also have a version to meet their obligations. Um, the industry is working toward a standardised consent form. Do you see any challenges with using this? Well, probably staff were saying if we have to keep consent forms, and I'm aware that some of the quality advice submissions have made uh, recommendations to remove such a requirement, um, then there is a clear need to have a consistent fee consent form for advisors and their clients. The current approach simply is not efficient uh, with licensees and advisors have been recruiting additional staff to manage the actual process. It really needs to be designed with the client in mind. If the industry could produce a simple fee consent form, noting ASIC has already produced a simple example, then I expect this would be welcomed. I think the main challenge that needs to be overcome though is how to deal with the privacy aspects associated with obtaining a consent form that can deal with more than one product across entities. And further, how those relevant product providers would then facilitate such an approach, reflecting the complexity in their systems and processes. Mm. Look, um, what are some of the common traps, Brian, that you're seeing with the, the new ongoing fee arrangement legislation? Uh, there's some common errors here that we've been identifying. Um, I think I'll focus on two aspects. Fee disclosure statement templates um, not being updated, um, such as not removing statements relating to the giving of the FDS to establish the anniversary day, which was one of the transitional um, year requirements. Uh, ensuring the anniversary date 
is explicitly noted and not the date issued as for the transition, uh, removing references to estimating previous fees for the last year, we have to disclose the actual fees the client has paid to us. So we can't do those estimations anymore. And check your calculation of your key dates in the FDS template and within your relevant systems you're using, whether it's X-Plan or whichever system you choose, just as, such as the FDS giving timeline, the renewal period timeline. It's not difficult to get these wrong by day when I explained how they work differently to each other. Uh, and then the second part is around the ongoing fee arrangements, policy and process. Just make sure your policy and process reflects the post-transition requirements. Any transitional requirements ceased on the 30th of June, 22. So make sure your policies and your process remains up to date. Wow, Brian, thanks so much for your time and your insights on this. Um, certainly a lot for advisors and licensees to consider as we enter that business as usual phase with the new ongoing fee arrangement rules. Anytime, Sarah. It's great to spend time with you today. And it's always good to share insights so we can all learn from each other. Thanks again. Now, remember, if you have any technical questions, you can contact BT Technical Services team on 1800 655 901 or by email to technical at And you can join us for our fortnightly BT Academy webinars where we discuss all things technical and regulatory in the advice space. Join Brian Ashenden on Wednesday, 17 August, 12 noon, Australian Eastern Standard Time for our next BT Academy webinar episode 57. With great power comes great responsibility. The role of the financial advisor comes with significant responsibility, custodian of a client's wishes and desires, counsellor and guide through the myriad of possibilities and ethical dilemmas that arise not only for clients but also for advisors. Whilst not a tangled web, navigating your way can be sticky at times as you deal to the multiverse of competing obligations. In this ethics-based session, Brian will look at a range of ethical scenarios to consider what options are available to assist you on your journey. To register for that session, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. There you can also view our previous webinars on demand and all sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.